All right, so many people would consider America to be the greatest nation on the planet, correct? This is like, see, did you hear that? Yup. Did you hear the certainty in that tone? This is why every single year people attempt to enter this country. It's why my mom left Brazil when she was a young adult. It's why your four parents at some point in the past left the country where they were from and emigrated here. American culture has taught you that you are great, both as an individual and as a nation. And truly, we cannot deny great things have happened in this country and to this country in the past. It is undeniable. And truly, great opportunities exist here. There is a reason why we have been taught since we were kids that there is this thing called an American dream. We don't hear about Brazilian dreams and Chinese dreams and South African dreams. We hear about American dreams, right? But this self-centered teaching muddies the waters for the Christian about what is truly great. The kingdom of Israel was great, right? Solomon in all of his splendor was great. The queen of Sheba came one of the greatest countries of the time, came to Solomon to see all the glories, wonders, and greatness. And the kingdom of Israel is no more. Alexander the Great's kingdom was great. From Macedonia to almost India, he conquered. His kingdom was great. And it's no longer in existence today. The Roman Empire was a great empire. We are living still in the residue of many of their accomplishments and philosophies, but the Roman Empire is no more. In week four of Untying the Knot, Jesus is going to teach us about real greatness. But if you ask Americans what greatness looks like, they'll say, you look at us, right? But they'll say something like this. Greatness is different for every person. The reason that America defines greatness this way is because we have embraced this idea about self-realization. That's what makes things great, is when you self-actualize. Whatever it is that you want on the inside, if you make it happen, you are great. It's about you determining what is great in this life and having the freedom to go and pursue it. Whatever it is that makes you happy, you go and do it. That's the great American life. And therefore, we learn that greatness is about self-discovery, self-expression, and self-fulfillment. And the crazy thing is, is that for some reason, God wants to call Americans to be a part of Jesus' church. And they come into this church with this mantra, this thing that has been taught to them and ingrained in them since they were little ones, about life is about you. Life is about you actualizing yourself and your expressions and your happiness. And then the American becomes a Christian and enters into a church. And they think, oh, I don't like that worship song. Oh, I don't like this passage that pastor is preaching on this morning. I don't like the colors of the carpet and the walls. Do you see the clash of American culture and then true Christianity? 
The gospel says greatness is not experienced when you find yourself, but when you lose yourself. America says that greatness is experienced by gaining. The gospel says greatness is experienced by losing. America says greatness is experienced when you become rich. And the gospel says that greatness is experienced when you become poor. America says greatness is experienced by being your own master. But the gospel says greatness is experienced when you become a lowly slave. Because that's what the Lord Jesus did. King of all things. And he took the form of a bondservant. In essence, what I'm trying to tell you this morning is that the gospel is countercultural to America. But still, nonetheless, God is calling a people for himself from all nations, including those who live in America. So what's an American Christian to do? To become great, Jesus says, you become the least. And Jesus clarifies how this happens today. The gospel teaches that the real way to be free, the way to be great, isn't this pursuit of a life of life, liberty, and happiness, but of giving yourself away. Just like Jesus himself, who we believe is the greatest human being that has ever lived. Amen? Okay, I was like, oh, you don't think that Jesus is the greatest human? Okay. I'm not saying he's not God. Theanthropic. All right, let's jump in. Proposition. We're going to see today that Jesus clarifies greatness by taking on flesh to be the living embodiment of Scripture. That's where we're going today. Real greatness, according to Jesus, isn't marriage, it isn't family, it isn't hobbies, and it isn't earning money because Jesus had no wife. And if we define greatness by romance, Jesus' life was a failure right? Jesus had no family, no kids, no matter what conspiracy theories like to say. So if you define greatness as having 2.5 kids, then Jesus' life was a failure. Jesus was poor. So if you define greatness as having money, Jesus' life was a failure. But we maintain that as Christians that Jesus was the greatest person that has ever lived. This means that the American dream and today's cultural idea of greatness is far from the gospel, and it's far from biblical Christianity. Real greatness comes by knowing and living like the greatest there is, and that's not Muhammad Ali. It's Jesus of Nazareth. So you have to ask, okay, pastor, what does greatness have to do with today's difficult saying? We're going to get there. Christians have had a shaky relationship with the Old Testament over history. Christians have predominantly responded to the Old Testament with one or two ways. Some say that the Old Testament law has no bearing, no relationship to the Christian today. It isn't authoritative. And it isn't binding in the Christian's life. I have legitimately known, I know present tense Christians who say they don't read the Old Testament. And they have no desire to. They only read the New Testament. 
And they point to verses like this, Romans 10, 4, where Paul says that Jesus is the end of the law. But they just focus on that phrase. They take a verse out of context, and then they take a phrase out of context. But Paul says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So they use verses like this to say that the Old Testament is obsolete. Now, you and I know, I pray after seven plus years together, that there are dangers of ripping verses out of context, and even worse, dangers in ripping phrases out of its context. Instead of doing the hard work of finding what God's interpretation is from this passage. Yes, this verse emphatically says that Jesus is the end of the law. But there's so much more just in this verse, in Romans 10, and in throughout the whole book of Romans, and throughout the whole New Testament, and throughout the whole scriptures. For the Christian, Jesus is the end of pursuing the law to make you feel right with God. To rid the notion that there is a relationship between your doing with earning some sort of status of being with God. As Christians, we know, we should know, like the reformers say, that civic righteousness cannot make you right with God. It cannot make right what is wrong between you and God. So that's one of the ways that Christians handle the Old Testament. But then there's another extreme. Some say the Old Testament law is fully binding on the Christians still today. I have known and know Christians who still celebrate Sabbath on Saturdays, and they will not do anything. I know Christians who will follow the ethnic Jewish dietary laws to the T still today. And this morning, what I want to challenge are both of these extremes, because I believe that Jesus does. And what we need to say is this, is that both of these responses cut the Gordian knot instead of untying it. It's a simple, easy, quick fix out of the situation that really doesn't get you out of the situation. So what we're after here today on this Sunday gathering is to see how Jesus clarifies the relationship between the Christian and the Old Testament. And the first thing that you need to see is that this hard saying of Jesus is a part of a greater context of a sermon that is called the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, Jesus is correcting how those in power, how religious leaders have taught people. He's doing corrective teaching. One of Jesus' purposes in the Sermon on the Mount is to contrast what was going on in first century Judaism with what real religion is, real Christianity. And we will see Jesus asserts himself as the focal point and the centerpiece of the Old Testament. And that he is the fulfillment of all Old Testament promises. So let's dive in. All right, point one. You're going to see in our first couple verses, the call for you today is to rightly see Jesus as the fulfillment of Scripture. And we're going to see what Jesus means for us to see him rightly as the fulfillment and what he doesn't mean. In our first point, we will untie the knot of the relationship between Jesus 
and the scriptures, specifically the Old Testament. Now, some of the misinterpretation that Christians have had has come from terms. Because typically, we think of something new as shiny, right? Better than old. Old is antiquated. Old is outdated. Old is rusty. Out with the, and in with the, right? And we project that, I think, misinterpretation of the word onto the scriptures, right? We, have a ne- we bring to these words negative cultural understandings that the gospel tries to shed. And not just for just old and new. There's so many wrong cultural understandings we bring to the gospel. And we try to make the gospel mean those things. And we're going to try to peel away those things in untying the knot. Because the Old Testament is old, some say it is unnecessary and outdated. And because the New Testament is new, it is fresh and it is better. Jesus claims this morning to be the fulfillment of the scriptures. But that does not necessarily and exclusively mean that the Old Testament is obsolete. That's where we're starting from this morning. But it also doesn't mean the Old Testament law is fully binding in your life today as a Christian. And then we'll unpack what that means a little bit further. Let's get to verse 17. Jesus says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Now that seems to correct the extreme right. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So Jesus is done addressing the extreme right, the alt-right in his day, which he loves to do. He loves to correct the alt-right in any culture, even American culture. Okay. Jesus corrects the idea that the law is obsolete. Jesus did not come to abolish the law or to abolish the prophets. Now, by abolish, Jesus means that he did not come to destroy the law, to break down the law. In fact, the root word that Jesus uses here is where you and I get the English word for divorce. So what Jesus actually means, we could read that Jesus didn't take on flesh to divorce the law from the Christian. There is a relationship, a vital relationship between the Christian and the Old Testament. And we have to figure out with the rest of our days, what is that relationship? And so we ask, okay, therefore, and I think the first generation of Christians asked this as well. How Jewish should Christianity be? How much of the Old Testament should a Christian know and follow? What clues does Jesus give to us? Oh, this week, Heritage, we are finishing reading together in the yearly Bible reading plan, the book of Genesis, right? So you know what's coming. Do I have to read Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy? How Jewish should our reading be? And what clues does Jesus give to us? Now, we're going to begin with Jesus' reference to the law or the prophets. This phrase, law and the prophets, law or the prophets, is a synonym for the entire Old Testament. What a Jew would call the Tanakh. The Old Testament, though, isn't broken down into two parts, law and prophets. It's actually broken down into three parts. There's law which a Jew called Torah, 
There is prophets, which Jews called Nevaim. And then there's the writings, think like Psalms and Proverbs, which they call Ketavim. When Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, he is referring to the entire Old Testament. Jesus didn't take on flesh to destroy the Old Testament. Jesus didn't take on flesh to divorce the Christian from the Old Testament. Not Torah, not Nevaim, and not Ketavim. Jesus came instead to fulfill the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets and the writings, entire Tanakh. People misapply verse 17 because they assume, once again, we have these cultural assumptions about words that we project onto Christianity. And it must mean something because I think this word means something versus how Jesus means to use the word. And people misapply this verse because they believe that something that is fulfilled is no longer necessary today. That's the misinterpretation and the misapplication. But the question I need to pose for a moment, and a quick little mental activity is this. How can you rightly and fully understand the work of God in his son without reading and knowing Old Testament? How can we understand when Paul talks about the substitutionary atonement of Jesus if we don't read Old Testament and about Passover and the necessity of a Passover lamb? That's all Judaism. How can we understand that Jesus is meant to be the ultimate king and authority of our lives if we don't read about King David and the promise God made to David that a future son of David would reign forever on his throne in Jerusalem? How do we ever understand that? We don't live in a theocracy or a monarchy. We live in a, though we sometimes forget, a constitutional republic. How can we understand that Jesus is the Son of Man? Jesus' favorite phrase to use to describe himself in the New Testament. If we don't read Ezekiel, yes, bloody, strange Ezekiel, and understand what Son of Man means. How can we understand that religion cannot make us right with God, cannot put us in a good standing with God, if we don't read the Mosaic Law? And see how the Israelites fail time and time again to live rightly. Conclusion, the Old Testament is not obsolete. It is just as vital today as it was when Jesus first said this. Verse 18, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, this verse is one of the strongest verses in all the Bible about the inspiration of the scriptures. Jesus is so serious that these 66 books are the inspired word of God because he says that they're even inspired and important down to the very letter that the original writer used to pen those words. Do you see that? Even the smallest letter is inspired. Verse 18, whether you realize this or not, is eschatological. 
You're welcome, Vernon. I dropped it. Jesus' claim here is that until the eschaton, when the heavens and the earth are renovated, until then, not even the smallest letter of Scripture is going to pass. All Scripture will be accomplished. This is future. Do you see that? Okay. Jesus claims that the Old Testament is God's word, even down to the individual letters of each word. Now, right now, we're going to bring up a, a slide really quick. I want you to see what Jesus literally means by the smallest letters in the language that they read and spoke. You may not, you, you probably cannot read this. I'll read it for you. Eastern languages read from right to left. These are two words. This is Yeshua, and this is Yahweh. This is the name of Jesus. This is the name of God that God revealed to Moses. What I want to point out is a couple things. You see these little dots right here? This wasn't added by the Jews till much later, Middle Ages, because there were no vowels in Hebrew. So this stuff right here is an original. So all they had was consonants. So this, 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 this. Good so far? This right here is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It is a yod. So we get Yeshua, Yahweh, right? Jesus says, I'm so serious about the Old Testament, I'm even serious about the smallest letters that the Old Testament writers used to create my word. Do you get how serious Jesus is about the Old Testament this morning? Even the Yod itself is important to him. Out of all names that God could have for himself, it leads off with the smallest of letters because real greatness is becoming the least. Real greatness is becoming the smallest. And it's even in the very name of God. Amen? Amen. All the words of the Old Testament, down to its smallest letters, has been, will be, completed and fulfilled in Jesus. All the words and promises of the Old Testament find their being in Jesus. Jesus here is claiming to be the focal point, the centerpiece of the Old Testament. And he says that all the Old Testament is pointing to him and pointing to the eschaton. I want you to listen to how Paul says this to Greek Christians, not even Jewish Christians, in Corinth, Greece. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, he says, As many are the promises of God in him, in Jesus, they are yes. Therefore, also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Do you see the consistency of Jesus and Paul? All of God's promises in the Old Testament, down to the smallest letter, even to the yod, find their fulfillment of Jesus. It's even in the very name of God the Father and God the Son. Conclusion is, Jesus is still working to complete all the promises of Scripture. New Testament, and most importantly this morning, the Old Testament. So to be a Christian doesn't mean we value the New Testament over the Old Testament. 
To be a Christian means we rely on Jesus to be the fulfillment of all the scriptures. Let's ask this for a moment. We've talked a lot about signs over the past couple years, especially through the Gospel of John. What is the sign that a Christian is a Christian? The sign, in the ultimate sense, is God working the new covenant into them. And where did we read about this new, shiny, fresh covenant? The Old Testament. In the prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And we have looked at these promises. I'm not joking here. This is not an overstatement. Maybe at least 50 times in seven years, we've talked about new covenants and Ezekiel 36, because it's that important. And we ask, what is the new covenant? It's God ripping out our previous hard hearts and putting in a new heart and a new spirit. And then we ask, what is the function of this new heart and this new spirit in you and I as Christians promised in the new covenant? And God is clear through Ezekiel in the Old Testament. It is for you to know, to walk, and to love the scriptures. Specifically, Tanakh, Torah, Ketavim, Nevi'im. God gives us a new heart for his word, something that you and I lost in Adam and Eve, and something God is restoring in us day by day through Christ Jesus, his church, and his word. And this new heart for God and his word is the start for us today to redefine greatness. And that leads us to our point of application, our second point. So based on this, the call today that I'm ringing out to you is this, is to pursue greatness. We can agree with America to a certain point. Pursue greatness, but pursue it not by making more money, getting married, having kids. Pursue greatness by living out in passing on scripture to others. That's where we go in our application because Jesus goes there in our final verse. So in part, America's call for you to pursue greatness is right. If you walk out of this place today and you decide to pursue greatness, you are pursuing a right thing, the correct thing. But the gospel tells you that greatness is greater than your understanding, your American understanding of life, liberty, and happiness. At Heritage, this year moving forward, we are trying our best. I'm trying my best. Keep praying for me. To clarify and to reduce our mission around three things. To love people with the love of Jesus until the return of Jesus. To be present in the lives of others, especially those who are not like you. And then to open up your life to invest in the church and for the church to invest in you. As we begin point of application, can you see the relationship that scripture plays in all three of those things? Can you already see how it fits? I pray you do. A part of loving Jesus is loving his word. Because Jesus says, I am the word of God. 
But I've encountered Americans who consider themselves to be Christians say something like this. I love God. I just don't believe his word. I don't believe this thing we call the Bible is the word of God. But Jesus in John 1 claims to be the logos, the word of God. That clashes, right? You cannot love Jesus rightly without having his word central in your life. A part of loving the people of Jesus is loving his people according to how he has told us to love his people. So that boils back down to his word. Jesus, in his word, gives us definition, gives us a clear path for how to love his people, how to be present in the lives of people. His word is what the church is investing in you on a weekly basis in our Sunday gatherings. And then pretty soon, hooray, in our Wednesday gatherings, right? You cannot love Jesus if you do not love his body, the church. But here's the clash. It is not natural for you, and it's not natural for me, to set scripture as the ultimate and final authority over our lives. But to be a Christian means that God has given you the desire for this. And we have been quite clear with you about phrases like this. Given you a desire, not perfection, a desire, a pattern, not perfection, but a pattern nonetheless. You see, non-Christians don't struggle with themselves, between themselves and culture, between themselves, culture, and God about making scripture their ultimate authority. There's no non-Christian out there right now. It's like, I so want God's word to be central in my life. No one's thinking that right now. Only the Christian struggles with that. And let that be a reminder to you, if you struggle with your assurance, that non-Christians don't struggle like that. No non-Christian says, I really want to do what God wants for me. In Matthew 5, I'm just struggling with it. That's proof that God has begun a work in you. In our final verse, Jesus directly tells us that what we do with his word defines greatness. Let's get there in verse 19. Jesus says, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And this word in Greek for great is one of my favorite Greek words. It's just our English word, mega. You will be called mega in the kingdom of heaven. There are two options. Do you see it, church? Two paths. There are two ways that you can enter out of this place today. And there are two paths towards it. And let's take a look at it. You can seek to annul the scriptures. That is a path for you today. The scriptures can have no relationship, no impact of your pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. And you can tell others to do the same. That's an option. Or you can make it your aim to keep the scriptures. You can set the scriptures as the pathway to life, liberty, and happiness. 
and you can make it your aim to teach this to others. One path leads to greatness, and one path does not, according to Jesus. Now, by a null, Jesus means the exact same thing that he said in verse 17. Abolish, destroy, divorce. So abolish, destroy, divorce scripture from your life, and you will be called the least in eternity. Ah, mega. But if you keep and, you see how Jesus puts those two together? If you keep and teach scripture, you will be called great in the kingdom. My exhortation to you today is to abandon what American culture and to abandon what your flesh tells you is truly great. That's my call to you today. Will you pick up the phone? Don't leave me unread. Don't send me to voicemail now. Please don't. Your call has been forwarded. <laughs> don't do it. Greatness, according to Jesus, is found not in the marriage, not in the family, not in the workplace, not in your hobbies. Jesus is clear. Greatness is found when you make him and his word central. Live out the scripture and pass on his word to others. And I want to share with you a trio of verses, trifecta of verses from Paul, to make this clear for you. And then for you to see that included in this is Old Testament. First one, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. Paul tells Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof. Yep, God's word has to do that. I'm sorry, church. Taste is like, can you like give us at least some lightheartedness sometimes, please? For correction for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. When Paul says all scripture is inspired by God, what scripture do you think he's referring to? This is like the 50s, 60s, 70s in the first century. What scripture is he referring to? Because Yeah, Old Testament. Because presently in the first century, yes, despite what liberals like to say, earliest churches had copies of Paul's letters. And they were quickly making copies and circulating it throughout the Mediterranean. They already had copies of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the first century. And they're frantically copying it and passing it on to others. That's why in southern Egypt we found fragments of John's gospel that date to the 90s AD. So forget what American collegiate system tries to teach you about how really recent the New Testament is. It was written in the first century. And archaeology proves it. But yes, Paul is not referring to the 27 books of our New Testament. He is referring to the 39 books of the Jewish scriptures. Paul is telling Timothy, a first generation Gentile Christian, that the Jewish scriptures play an essential role in his life and in the church. It's profitable for many things. Paul says Old Testament will make you complete, will make you ready for every work. Romans 15, 4, Paul says this. 
whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Effect. So that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. That's beautiful, right? It's a very beautiful verse. Paul is speaking to an entire church now, not just to Timothy. And this church is filled with Jewish and Gentile Christians. And he tells them what was written in earlier times was written for their instruction and for your instruction and for my instruction. And this is a reference yet again to the Jewish scriptures, our 39 books of Old Testament. The Old Testament here, Paul says, was written for your perseverance, for your encouragement. For some reason, God wants to use Old Testament in your life to make you persevere, to encourage your heart today, to give you hope for today. That doesn't sound old to me. Does it sound old to you? No. But the Christian has two things that wages war against this truth. We have our nature. And at the core of your nature and my nature is for us to be our own self-governing authority. No one can tell you what to do with your life. No government, no governor, no president, whether right or left, no church, no doctor, no pastor, no book can tell you what to do. We're great people. We're Americans. You also have culture, especially social media culture, and they sing in unison to your body. They sing to you that you are your own magic. You are what you have been waiting for all of your life. And the song is about self-realization, self-discovery, self-expression, self-governing authority. And the gospel clashes with these ideas. Christian, you have objective truth to guide you in this life. His name is Jesus. Yod is in his name. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the word of God. Therefore, a rejection of his word is a rejection of Jesus himself. Do you see how that's a necessary conclusion today? A rejection of the scriptures is a rejection of Jesus himself. Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And we've heard the word of Christ this morning in Matthew 5. And he claims to be the word of all of it as well. So we have to ask, okay, pastor, how far do we go with the Old Testament then? Should I be clearing my calendar every single Saturday? Start paying attention to the cycles of the moon? Start partaking in Jewish festivals? Should I cut out Bacon for my diet? Ryan said, nope. He is the Baconator. Okay? Is that what you're saying, Pastor? No, that's not what I'm saying. So the issue is, how far do we go with the Old Testament then? This is why reading and rightly understanding God's interpretation of the book of Hebrews is essential for every Christian. And why I pray 
before my final day on earth or until if, if there is a day that God moves me, that we will, God willing, go through, word by word, the book of Hebrews. Okay? It's that important. For now, though, you need to know that the book of Hebrews outlines what aspects of the law Jesus has fulfilled, meaning ended. The Mosaic law is split into different categories. I'll just give two examples really quick. We have the moral law. Think Ten Commandments, which Jesus reteaches in the Sermon on the Mount. Then there's the ceremonial national law of Israel that was meant to help them create a distinctive life from the Gentile ethnicities around them. For example, circumcision. No one did it outside Israel. It was a distinctively Jewish thing to do. No other ethnicity did it. Step by step, Hebrews shows us how Jesus has become our high priest So we don't need a priest to mediate our experiences with God. Jesus is the Passover lamb, so we no longer need to carry out animal sacrifices. Thank you, Lord, that I don't have to slaughter cute calves at the compound. I don't know what would happen to me if I had to. Hebrews shows us that Jesus has become our Shabbat, our rest, our shalom. So therefore, we must not follow Jewish holy days to make us right with God. The Christian's focus in the Mosaic law is the moral law. God creating the Ten Commandments in our hearts, which Jesus reinforces in the Sermon on the Mount. One day we will get there. For now, real greatness is experienced when you live out the Scriptures. But it's also found and passing on the scriptures to others. Remember I told you a trifecta from Paul? Here's the third. 2 Timothy 2.2. Paul says, These things that you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. At Heritage, what does that sound like to you? I love you, church. I love you, church. It's not just a program. It's heritage trying to be faithful and obedient to 2 Tim 2.2. Okay. Paul calls Timothy to take all that Paul has invested in him over the years, all the scripture that God has poured into him, and to pass it on to others. Do you see it? But wait, there's more. Then one day, those that Timothy invested scripture into must pass it on to others. And that is why we disagree with religions like Catholicism and even to extent Presbyterianism in saying that Christians are born, not made. That's why we do not baptize infants. Because Christians are made by God. Just because they're born into a Christian family with Christian parents does not make them Christians. This is why we focus so intently on Scripture in our gatherings on Sundays and Wednesdays. I think you know, in America, pressure is sky high. You want to make a successful church? Make it like a conference. Make it like a TED Talk. Make it fun. Right? But the focus here at Heritage is Scripture. Scripture prayed. 
Scripture sung, Scripture read, Scripture preached, Scripture taught. That's why this year moving forward, our family ministry and our kindred ministry is a focus. It is that important for us. For those of you, so I'm speaking to the ladies of Heritage right now, for those of you who are involved in our family ministry, you are passing on the scriptures to the next generation. You are being obedient to Paul's call to Timothy. That still rings out today. Do you see how important that is? How important it is to have our A game for our kids next door? Whether it's two or ten. I can't imagine ten in that room. We have to do something. For right now, even if it's two, it's that important. You are teaching them Old and New Testament so that one day God may use that foundation to quicken their hearts because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So we are investing God's word in them over the years. So if God wants to quicken them, he will. For those of you involved in our kindred ministry, and what we're doing this year, you are either going to be pouring into another Christian or you're opening up your life for another Christian to pour into you. I know that's scary. Been there. In all this, we seek to put you, Heritage Christian, in a position to truly experience a great life. Because getting to retirement doesn't mean great life. Getting married doesn't mean great life. Having the kids doesn't mean great life. Getting the pay raise doesn't mean great life. Jesus defines great life as loving his word, knowing his word, living it out, passing it on to others. So the question is today, what path are you going to pursue? What door are you walking out of this church today? Are you going to annul, destroy, divorce God's word from your life? Are you going to leave this place and conclude... Nah, I'm my own self-governing authority. I do what I want. Or are you going to keep scripture and teach it to others? One road leads to ruin, and one road leads to greatness. You can walk out of this door today, nothing's going to happen to you that's going to lead to literal ruin. Can I walk out of this door? Remember, Jesus never had a job. He never married. He never had kids. But Jesus knew God's word and taught it because Jesus is the word of God. And Jesus lived the greatest of all lives. If you don't believe that, I'd be hard-pressed to believe if you're really a Christian. It was the greatest, even though it was marked by suffering, even though he bled and died, because in his crucifixion and in his resurrection, taking on God's wrath, for our sins, Jesus experienced glorification, and he's at the right hand of God right now. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Pursuing greatness, therefore, is pursuing Jesus. Pursuing his word is knowing his word and struggling to live out his word. So if you are struggling to live out his word today, you are in good company and you are in a good place because it is one of the marks that you are a Christian. Pursuing his word is passing on his word to others. So family ministry, those of you giving their time this year to kindred, thank you for being obedient.
This is greatness.